0: You're listening to Popaganda, the feminism and pop culture podcast. Today we're talking about snacks, or really systemic sexism and racism in the food industry. (laughs) And snacks. (laughs) I'm here with chef and writer Soleil Ho. Hi, Soleil. Hi. So, Soleil, how long have you been working in the food industry for now? About a decade. Wow, jeez. Yeah,
1: I waited tables all throughout college just to pay for snack money. So that's very relevant.
0: (laughs) So what I I know that now you're working as an executive chef here in Portland, but what's your favorite snack? My favorite snack is probably
1: has always been um, dehydrated cuttlefish. It's dehydrated. I have never had dehydrated cuttlefish. It tastes like jerky. I mean, it's it feels like jerky. It tastes like fish, but it's like beef jerky. It's the best. You can pull it apart like like string cheese. It's delicious.
0: Um, So you recently wrote a great article for Bitch um, that was analyzing the James Beard Awards. Mm -hmm. And the James Beard Foundation Awards are sort of like the Oscars for the food industry. Right. And can you tell me about sort of your perception of the James Beard Foundation Awards from working as a chef in the food industry and then what you found when you actually started crunching the numbers on who wins the awards? Well, um,
1: it's really hard not to notice when you're working in the industry. Especially as a woman, you notice that I mean, for the most part, I've usually been the only woman in the kitchen besides the pastry chef, who has usually been a woman. Um, And you see those demographics and you see who gets those promotions and who gets segregated into certain jobs. Um, Because there is very real gender segregation and racial segregation in the food industry. Um, And so you see the people who get funneled into the more um, visible, lauded positions are white men.
0: And so the James Beard Foundation Awards happen every spring. They're a really big deal for the food industry. Um, what What did you notice about the awards specifically that, that made you decide to look into them further?
1: At least in the past few years when they've started taking notice, um, it's hovered around 20% of uh, women in the overall nominee pool. Um, wow. As far so, as who so, so wins. For, yeah, I yeah know. so
0: for all these awards... The percent of women who are nominated for these super prestigious awards—it's only twenty percent of the of the nominee pool. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Even though I, I think we we say it earlier in the show, but women make up fifty-two percent of the restaurant industry. Yes. Um, but it's like I said before—they
1: um, don't get the—they don't get the jobs that get the awards, um, which is really unfortunate. But I mean, the awards are not the be-all end all of everything, but. Um, as Chef Amanda Cohen, who cooks at Dirt Candy, is her restaurant in New York, um, says, the awards, in a sense, determine who gets investors attracted to them, and who gets written about, and who gets to enter that hype cycle that allows you to do your own thing and have independence and open your own restaurant, and have that sort of financial flexibility and and um, mobility. And so, when it's distributed unfairly, um, it has very real results
0: right it's kind of like the oscars where a large percentage (laughs) of the population just want to be like write them off and ignore them entirely but who wins and who's nominated has real world impacts for those people right and and being nominated or winning a james beard award can change your life and can change the financial status of your restaurant right you can kind of compare it to
1: um the oscars in that the casting directors will look you know for the kind of actor who will win an oscar um And you can compare that to investors who are going to look for the kind of chef who will win a James Beard Award.
0: And so you actually took the nominee list this year. The James Beard Awards don't happen until May. But you took the nominee list from this year and put it into a big spreadsheet and actually (laughs) crunched the numbers on the gender breakdown as well as the racial breakdown as best you could of the nominees. So what did you find when you actually crunched the numbers?
1: Um, I found that compared to the real um, ratios um, of like race and ethnicity in the American food industry. White nominees far outpaced um, the number of nominees who were people of color. In the James Beard Award nominee pool, about 80% were white and about 20% were people of color. Whereas in
0: the food industry at large, it's more like 50-50. Yeah. So, so in, the, in the food industry at large, there's lots of people of color who are working in restaurants And making food but they're not the ones who are getting these prestigious awards right and that that relates actually to um, I mean this this relates to a larger issue around celebrating cuisine and celebrating the food that's made by white male chefs when the food made by women or people of color isn't getting the same kind of recognition right you're an article that um, we're going to share now that you're going to read <laughs> that was uh, featured in the 20th anniversary print issue of Bitch that touches on a lot of these same themes around celebrating cuisine that's made by white people while overlooking and not appreciating the same foods when they're made by people of color or who are actually from the cultures that, um, that the white chefs then rip off. That article is called Craving the Other, and it's reprinted, like I said, in the 20th anniversary print issue of Bitch. Um, you wrote this article a couple years ago initially.
1: Yes, I think in 2013, right? Yeah, and it's it's weird how um, resonant it remains.
0: So the essay that you're going to share with us is called Craving the Other. It was originally published in 2013. It's reprinted in the 20th anniversary print issue of Bitch, which is out right now. Um, so, lay take it away.
1: Craving the Other. For a long time, Vietnamese food made me uncomfortable. It was brothy, weirdly fishy, and full of the gross animal parts that other people didn't seem to want. It was too complicated. I wanted the straightforward, prefabricated snacks that I saw on television. Bagel bites, Pop-Tarts, chicken nuggets. When my grandmother babysat me, she would make tiny concessions, preparing rice bowls with chopped turkey cold cuts for me, while everyone else got caramelized pork. I would make my own bagel bites by toasting normal sized bagels and topping them with Chinese sausage and a dash of sriracha. My favorite snack was a weird kind of fusion, a slice of nutrient void wonder bread sprinkled with a few dashes of Maggie sauce, an ultra plain proto bun mi that I came up with while rummaging through my grandmother's pantry. In our food-centric family, I was the barbarian who demanded twisted simulacra of my grandmother's masterpieces perverted so far beyond the pungent, saucy originals that they looked like the national cuisine of a country that didn't exist. When I entered my first year of college in Iowa, a strange pattern began to emerge as I got to know my classmates. Oh, you're Vietnamese? they'd ask. I love pho. And then the whispered question, Am I saying that right? The same people who would have made fun of me for bringing a stinky rice noodle salad to school 10 years ago talked to me as if I were the gatekeeper to some hidden temple that they had discovered on their own. Pho was a shortcut for them, a way to tell me that they knew about my culture and our soupy ways without me having to tell them. I would hear this again and again from that point on. I'm Vietnamese. They love pho. I told people to pronounce it a different way each time they asked knowing that they would immediately march over to their racially homogenous group of friends to correct them with the authentic way to pronounce their favorite dish. I'm sure that they were happy to learn a little bit about my family's culture, but I found their motivations for doing so suspect. What can one say in response? Oh, you're white? I love tuna salad. It sounds ridiculous, mostly because no one cares if a second-generation immigrant likes American food. Rather, the burden of fluency with American culture puts a unique pressure on the immigrant kid. I paid attention during playdates with my childhood friends, when parents would serve pulled pork sandwiches and coleslaw for lunch. It took me a long time to understand the appeal of mayonnaise, which, as a non-cream, non-cheese, non-sauce, perplexed the hell out of me. From watching my friends, I learned to put the coleslaw in the sandwich and sop the bread in the stray puddles of sauce in between bites. There's a similar kind of self-checking that occurs when I take people out to Vietnamese restaurants. Through unsubtle side-glances, they watch me for behavioral cues, noting how and if I use various condiments and garnishes so they can report back to their friends and family that they learned how to eat this food the real way, from a real, live, Vietnamese friend. Their desire to be true global citizens, eaters without borders, lies behind their studious gazes. When I go to contemporary Asian restaurants like Wolfgang Puck's now shuttered 2021 in Minneapolis and Jean-Georges von Richten's Spice Market in New York City, the entrees are always in the $16 to $35 range, and the only identifiable person of color in the kitchen is the dishwasher. The menus usually include little blurbs about how the chefs backpacked in the steaming jungles of the Far East, undoubtedly stuffing all the herbs and spices they can fit into said backpacks along the way, for research purposes and were so inspired by the smiling faces of the very generous natives of which there are plenty of tasteful black and white photos on the walls by the way and the hospitality oh the hospitality that they decided the best way to really crystallize their life-changing experience was to go back home and sterilize the cuisine they experienced by putting some micro cilantro on a twenty dollar curry to make it worthy of the everyday american sophisticate American chefs like to talk fancy talk about elevating or refining third-world cuisines, a rhetoric that brings to mind the mission civilisatrice that Europe took on to justify violent takeovers of those same cuisines' countries of origin. In its publicity materials, Spice Market uses explicitly objectifying language to describe the culture they're appropriating. And I quote, A timeless pain to Southeast Asian sensuality, Spice Market titillates Manhattan's meatpacking district with Jean-Georges von Richten's piquant elevations of the region's street cuisine. The positioning of Western aesthetics as superior to all the rest is an expression of the idea that no culture has value unless it has been improved by the West's Midas touch. If a dish hasn't been eaten or reimagined by a white person, does it really exist? Andrew Zimmern, host of Bizarre Foods, often claims that to know a culture, you must eat their food. I've eaten Vietnamese food my whole life, but there's still so much I don't understand about my family and the place we came from. I don't know why we could be so reticent, yet so emotional. Why Catholicism, the invader's religion, still has such a hold on us. Why we laugh so hard even at times when there's not much to laugh about. After endless plates of kombi, bánh xèo, and Chayao, I still don't know what my grandmother thinks about when she prays. Others appear to be on a similar quest for knowledge, though they seem to have fewer questions than answers. Like a plague of cultural locusts, foodies, chow hounders, and food writers flit from bibimbap to roti kunai, fetishizing each dish as some adventure in a bowl and using it as a springboard to generalize about a given culture's sense of family and community, the lack of pretense, passion, and spirituality. Eventually, a hole in the wall reaches critical white Instagrammer mass, and the swarm moves on to its next discovery, decrying the former fixation's loss of authenticity. The foodie's cultural cachet depends on being the only white American in the room, braving inhumane spice levels and possible food poisoning in order to share with you the proper way to handle Ethiopian injera bread. But they can't cash in on it unless they share their discoveries with someone else, thereby jeopardizing that sense of exclusivity. Thus, happiness tends to elude the cultural foodie. Why am I being such a sourpuss about people who just want to show appreciation for another culture? Isn't the embrace of multiculturalism through food a beautiful expression of a post-racial melo? Aren't I being the true racist here? Item. Asian Girls, by Day Above Ground, a wannabe Red Hot Chili Peppers bro band is full of references to East Asian food, juxtaposed with violently misogynistic yellow fever lyrics. And I quote, I love your sticky rice, butt-fucking all night, Korean barbecue, bitch, I love you, end quote. Yum. When criticism of the song surfaced in summer of 2013, the band insisted that the charges of racism were ridiculous because none of them were racists, that their many Asian friends thought it was hilarious, and that, at its heart, the song was about sharing their love for the culture. You know what they say, if you really love something, treat it with flippant disrespect. Item, Alton Brown's Asian Noodles episode of Good Eats, takes us on an educational trip to the typical Asian American grocery store by having its host travel through a lengthy underground tunnel that is a visual echo of the idea of digging a hole to China. He emerges onto a set decorated with noodles, a red and gold Chinese scroll, and that typically chinky, air-who music that so often plagues any mention of Asia in media. Also on the set is a bearded white man wearing a kimono and a sumo top-knot wig who acts out the stereotype of the severe Asian-American grocery store clerk. As Brown shares his vast pool of knowledge with the viewer, the clerk harasses him in fake Japanese. Clearly, knowing a lot about Asian food does not preclude one's ability to be an asshole about it anyway. These items speak to the Westerner, as cultural connoisseur and authority—a theme that has shown like a brilliant Angolan diamond in the imperialist imagination ever since Marco Polo first rushed back to Europe to show off the crazy Chinese ice cream that he discovered on his travels. I don't doubt that Day Above Ground and Alton Brown love bulgogi and soba and want more people to enjoy them, but that kind of appreciation certainly doesn't seem to have advanced their understanding of the Asian American experience beyond damaging. "'and objectifying generalities. "'Their commonality is their insistence "'on appreciating a culture that exists mostly in their heads. "'They share a nostalgia for someone else's life. "'Nostalgia traps the things you love in glass jars, "'letting you appreciate their arrested beauty "'until they finally die of boredom or starvation. "'The sought-after object cannot move on from you "'or depart from the fixed impression "'that you have imposed upon it. "'After all, A thing can't be authentic if it's allowed the power to change. Robbed of its ability to evolve on its own, the only way such a thing can venture into the future is as an accessory worn by someone who can. The pho you had at a dirty little street stall in Saigon, or the fresh goat's milk you tasted in Crete as a child, may both be beautiful in and of themselves. But their value diminishes if they are allowed an ounce of banality. In order for them to make you look like a more exciting, more interesting person, they must remain firmly outside the realm of the mundane. All of this makes the experience of the immigrants' Americanized children particularly head-scratching. We're appreciated for our usefulness in giving our foodie friends a window into the off-menu life of our cuisines. But the interest usually stops there. When I tell white Americans about the maggie and margarine sandwiches and cold-cut rice bowls that I used to eat, they tend to wrinkle their noses and wonder aloud. Why I would reject my grandmother's incredible, authentic Vietnamese food for such bastardizations. What I don't tell them is, it's because I wanted to be like you. We live in a time where the discriminating American foodie has an ever-evolving list of essentials in their pantry. Rozal hanout, shrimp paste, lemongrass, fresh turmeric. With a hugely expanded palette of flavors, you can experiment with these ingredients in ways... That used to be possible only for medieval kings and nobles who spent fortunes on chests of spices from the Orient. By putting leaves of cabbage kimchi on a slice of pizza, you're destroying the notion of the nation-state and unknowingly mimicking the ways in which many Korean-American children took their first awkward steps into assimilation, one bite at a time, until they stopped using kimchi altogether. Over time, you grow to associate nationalities with the quaint little restaurants that you used to frequent, before they were demolished and replaced with soulless, Americanized joints. You look at a map of the world and point a finger to Mongolia. Really good barbecue. El Salvador. Mmm, pupusas. Vietnam. I love pho. When you divorce a food from its place and time, you can ignore global civil unrest and natural disasters. Knowing, as you do, that the world's cultural products will always find safe harbor, in your precious, precious mouth.
0: That was writer and chef Soleil Ho. Very exciting news. Soleil is starting a new podcast all about race and food with friend and journalist Zahir Jamuhammad. It's called Racist Sandwich and launches in May. Keep an eye out for it. In the meantime, you can follow their podcast on Twitter at raceandfood. You're listening to Propaganda, the feminism and pop culture podcast. Today, we're talking